0: How did two young Chechnyan immigrants grow up to become the Boston Marathon bombers? Masha Gessen will tell us the story behind The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy.
1: Most people who are marginalized and even most people who hold radical beliefs do not actually build bombs and blow people up. How do you get into a good new habit and out of your bad ones?
0: Gretchen Rubin will be here to talk about her new book, better than before.
2: It's a pretty pervasive way of looking at the world and relating to expectations, because this all has to do with how you respond to an expectation.
0: We'll have the latest update from the publishing world, and Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Masha Gessen joins me now. Her book, The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy, is reviewed this week on our cover by Janet Napolitano. Hi, Masha.
1: Hi, good to be here.
0: So what led you to write a book about the Tsarnaev brothers?
1: Well, what actually happened was that my oldest friend from uh, when we were preteens in Moscow, and then we were friends in Boston, and then we were friends back in Moscow, uh, and now in the States again, she called me and she said, you know, you have to drop everything and write a book about the Tsarnaev brothers. This was like, a day or two after they were uh, identified. This is the Boston bombing. This is the Boston bombing. And as soon as she said that, I realized that, of course, she was right, and I had to drop everything and write a book about them because I'd reported from Chechnya, and um, I'd reported on both wars there. Uh, I had reported on a lot of the terrorist attacks in Russia, uh, both as a reporter and as an editor, sort of coordinating coverage. I'd, um, when I was an Eman Fellow at Harvard in 2003, 2004, I studied terrorism, And uh, I'd been, and I think this is probably the most important factor for me, I'd been a Russian-speaking teenage immigrant in Boston.
0: So you had both the Boston connection and the Russian connection, as well as the Chechen connection. You immediately depart and travel to Chechnya, to Dagestan, to
1: Kyrgyzstan, right? Where else did you travel for this? Um, In Boston. In Boston. (laughs) That would be the last place. Uh, I, um, I did it sort of in two stages. I tried to do some reporting immediately. And I also tried to do some reporting a little bit later to let things cool off and let people stop feeling so besieged by the media as they had been. I don't know how much that strategy actually paid off. It was I mean, it was a very, very difficult reporting project because sort of the two worst things that can happen to sources um, when, when you're trying to work on a story, both had happened. What they was had, that? Well, one is that people who weren't used to being public people became public very suddenly, Mm -hmm. had a lot of media attention. So I came across a lot of people who felt like they'd said more than they wanted to say and they'd had more exposure. Um, And, you know, that's people who'd gone to school with them, neighbors, friends, family. And the other thing is that a lot of them had been harassed by the FBI. So they were just scared. How did that
0: differ between Boston and... You're reporting abroad?
1: There were actually incredible common threads between Boston and my reporting abroad because, I mean, the amount of media attention had uh, that was universal. And you know there are some amazing reporters who travel to the, to the far reach of uh, reaches of Kyrgyzstan, which sounds like Dagestan. You know, it sounds like it's in the Caucasus. It's actually in Central Asia. So Dagestan and Kyrgyzstan, the two key places in the story, are actually 1,500 miles apart. And there were reporters that had gone to to both places um, and found everybody. Uh, I like to think that I found more everybody's, but uh, but certainly the, you know they they'd been there. Also, because family um, was spread in the United States and in the Caucasus, uh, there were people who had been in touch with the FBI investigators Mm -hmm. and were actually scared to speak in Chechnya as well. Sort of a side effect of that uh, kind of globalization of the story was that the conspiracy theories that I encountered – were identical Mm -hmm. uh, in these places that were 5,000 miles apart, like Kyrgyzstan and the United States, Uh, and sometimes uh, like word for word identical.
0: I would imagine you having written both a biography of Putin and a book about Pussy Riot, that you're not an unknown quantity to many of the people that you were talking to. Did you find that that worked in your favor, against your favor? Did they have a preconception of you or – Are they more likely to talk to you?
1: Generally speaking, I think being a well-known journalist in Russia was to my advantage. And having reported from Chechnya was a huge advantage. I did have people to ask to connect me to other people. And I, I had a decent reputation among the human rights activists there. I mean, the really advantageous things were unexpected, like running into a geography professor at the University of Colorado who had worked with migrant populations in Central Asia, including the Chechens of Tokmok, a tiny town where the Tsarnaevs had grown up. And so I had an in into that community, Mm -hmm. which is very, very difficult to penetrate. But once you're in, you're in and everybody will talk to you. Tell us about that little town and about the brothers growing up and sort of where they came from. Um, So that's the very depressing beginning of the book uh, is the history of the deportation of Chechens from, uh, from the North Caucasus to Central Asia in 1944. And I think it is very important to the story because it's very important to the Chechen identity. In 1944, Stalin decided that the people, uh, the various ethnic groups of the Caucasus had betrayed the Soviet Union by collaborating with the Germans. There was no real substance to this. Uh, but the several ethnic groups, of which the Chechens were the largest, were rounded up, placed in cattle cars, and sent to Central Asia. And as I mentioned, that's about 1,500 miles. Mm-hmm. The journey lasted from a week to a couple of weeks. Many, many people died en route. And when they were uh, thrown off the trains uh, at at their destinations, there was no no housing for them. There was no food for them. There was forced labor for them. The conditions, and it's awful to think that you can sort of compare these things, but the conditions were actually worse than the Nazi death camps that would begin to be liberated a couple of months later. Hmm. Um, I mean, the starvation rations were less. And they weren't getting them. How many people are you talking about? We're talking about a, a total deportation of over a million people, mm-hmm. uh, of whom probably at least half died, probably more. So the Tsarnaya family landed in Tokhmok which is a tiny town about an hour, well, now it's an hour, then it was more, about 60 miles outside of um, Bishkek, which is the capital of Kyrgyzstan.
0: And how did they grow up? What did their parents do? What was their childhood like? Were they Did they move around a lot? When did they immigrate?
1: The father, Anzor Tsarnaev, uh, grew up in Tokmokh. And the mother, Zubidat, grew up in Dagestan in the Caucasus, and she belonged to a different ethnic group, the Avars. From the Russian point of view, the Avars and the Chechens are indistinguishable, but of course that's not the case at all. So, so it was a mixed marriage— And that created a lot of problems. They Mm -hmm. weren't ever fully accepted into either family. They started out moving around a lot, and the kids grew up moving around. And they basically kept going from Kyrgyzstan back to the Caucasus, from the Caucasus back to Kyrgyzstan, back to the Caucasus, finally to the United States, but leaving three of the four children behind for over a year while they were getting their asylum papers, that lasted about 16 years. For 16 years, they were moving around every couple of years trying to find a home for themselves. And finally, they come to the United States. And they settle in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They had relatives in the Boston area. Mm -hmm. At that point, it looked like a good place. Uh, The Chechen community in Boston is tiny. It's only about half a dozen families. But one of those families uh, were close friends. And Two of the—actually, uh, three of the Tsarnaev siblings at that point had already emigrated to the United States. So what year is it that they emigrate here? 2002. And then the, the other kids come a little more than a year later, so, so in 2003.
0: One kid who came first was?
1: Was Jahar, the youngest uh, brother and uh, the, the bomber who is on trial now in Boston.
0: What is their um, immigrant experience like in the U.S.?
1: At first, it's like anybody else's immigrant experience. They're lucky in some ways. They find a lovely landlady in Cambridge who gives them a huge discount. She's a Russian speaker. She really tries to help them. She tutors the children in English. It's sort of magical. And in other ways, they're not so lucky. The Tamerlan, the older brother, uh, has major aspirations as a boxer and actually good reasons to have those aspirations. He's an extremely talented boxer. He plans to make it onto the U.S. Olympic team and he doesn't. And somehow everybody's dreams just seem to break mm-hmm. um, after a, a number of years. The two daughters are married off um, in a sort of mixture of Chechen tradition and, and uh, an American tradition but um, or non-tradition. Uh, but anyway, they're both married off. Their marriages go badly. They both leave their husbands. They have small children. Everybody is living in this tiny apartment or it's now feeling tiny. Mm-hmm. In Cambridge, uh, the two daughters, their toddlers, uh, the two brothers, one of whom is at loose ends. He's dropped out of community college. He's delivering pizza. He's also – Uh, dealing drugs, or at least working as a drug runner. Um, The father is fixing clunkers in the street, uh, outside the house, in this neighborhood that's becoming rapidly gentrified, and it's not okay to fix clunkers there anymore. He's not making any money. He's having health problems. The mother who got a beautician's certificate and for a while it sort of looked great, um, the beauty salon where she was working basically goes belly up after the financial crisis of 2008. And by 2009, everybody seems to be miserable mm-hmm. and everybody's emigration seems to have failed, except Jahars, the youngest brother. He's at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. At that point, he's still in high school. He goes to, to the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth in 2011, and that's when, when, when he collapses. Uh, he can 't make the grades um, it's very odd that he chose that very mediocre school uh in the first place. Mm-hmm. He was actually a very good student. he was a social superstar um at the Cambridge Ris and Latin High School. Something is going wrong. Nobody is around to notice it. Um, the parents less than a year after he starts going to college, the parents actually divorce and go back to Dagestan and so that leaves. Uh, the two sisters have gone to, to New Jersey. That leaves the two brothers and Tamerlan's wife and little daughter sort of the, the, the last dwellers of this Cambridge apartment that once used to house their, their aspirations.
0: Now, how old are the two brothers again at the time of the Boston
1: Marathon? They're 26 and 19.
0: How do you go from, you know, this this failed immigrant experience in America, um, everyone at loose ends, but not an uncommon story, to this extreme act of terrorism.
1: That's the big question, right? And that's the problem with any story that we tell about terrorism is that no story really works because there's a logical syncope there. There's uh, most people who are marginalized and even most people who hold radical beliefs do not actually build bombs and blow people up. Mm-hmm. And none of the things that we understand about terrorists, either sort of in the in the popular imagination, which has mostly concentrated on, on so-called radicalization, or in the more scholarly uh, study, which has mostly focused on marginalization, on uh, on disenfranchisement, on the high tolerance for risk, none of those things are predictors. Mm-hmm. They're all necessary conditions for becoming a terrorist, but none of them are sufficient conditions for becoming a terrorist. What I think happens, and again, it doesn't happen to everybody, but what I think happens is that terrorism uh, and joining a terrorist organization becomes this incredibly appealing prospect and this incredible shortcut to greatness. You, nobody feels more a nobody than an immigrant. Nobody feels more sort of dis- disengaged from the society around gives them. Gives them a
0: purpose and an
1: identity. Gives them a purpose, an identity, and a way to engage the world around them. I mean, you get to go from being a nobody to declaring war on a great power. And the amazing part is that the great power accepts your declaration of war.
0: So when everyone, you know, who followed the Boston bombing, you know, and then we read uh, various newspaper and magazine stories about this and your book, and you try to draw... A psychological portrait and we know about you know, the, the drugs and then the radicalization. Is there something in your research that you came across or there are interviews you had in particular or things that people said that you thought, OK, that, that's, that's a key component of this?
1: I think there were probably several, but um, but the one that actually stayed with me, and maybe that's because I wrote it last, was the epilogue, uh, because I I talked to this young man whose whose life had been profoundly changed by the Boston bombing, but not not in any of the ways that you would predict. He was a classmate of Tamerlan's and a very good friend of Tamerlan's in high school, mm-hmm. and so. Um, after the bombing, he suddenly became a television personality and unlike of uh, unlike a lot of other people who ended up in the spotlight, he actually loved it and he was um, He was another uh, young Cambridge father who sort of had been given dreams by this very ambitious Cambridge high school that was weren 't going to come true um, and uh, and suddenly he discovered himself in the limelight he parlayed the uh, his his hours in the limelight into a CNN recommendation to Emerson College, where he's now studying to be a journalist. And I met him because he was hanging out uh, in the public uh, overflow room uh, during jury selection. And he said to me that what he, uh, he was very opposed to moving the trial from Boston, which the defense was still arguing for at that point. And he said that what had stayed with him was that moment when Jahar was captured And he, Lewis, was being interviewed in in front of the Boston Public Library by Anderson Cooper. And he was afraid that when Jahar was captured, Anderson Cooper was going to say, OK, well, we're dropping you now. We have to go to to the scene. But instead, he kept him engaged. And Lewis heard the entire crowd chanting, USA, USA. And he said, that's a moment that you can't take away from us. Uh, And you can't take that away from me. It will stay with me forever. And I thought, that is such a perfect mirror. Of that um, imagined glory of terrorism, the sort of this trick that makes a great person mm-hmm. out of somebody who felt lost and forgotten and and facing it at end just just a short while ago.
0: Did you encounter when you were traveling in Dagestan in Kyrgyzstan people who thought you know great they did this and um, furthered this cause in any way? I mean, were there any people who
1: there were people who. Um, who I think said things like that to me, my feeling was always that they were just trying to sort of get a rise out of me. What really shocked me were a couple of Sort of what I would almost call conversions that I witnessed in real time. Mm -hmm. At least a couple of people in the book started out with their sympathies on, um, and I, you know, I hate using this this dichotomy of sort of the terrorist side and the American side because I actually think this this imaginary war of terrorists against America is is part of the problem of of our framing of this whole story. But uh, but for the purposes of this story, these people's sympathies were with America, and then America's reaction to the bombing the and especially what happened to the Chechen community in Boston and elsewhere in the United States following the bombing, during the investigation, and the unexplained shooting by by an FBI agent of, um, of a Chechen man who was being interrogated in Florida in May 2013. All of that added up to this almost instant radicalization of people, one of whom identified as an American patriot and was serving in the U.S. Army, another who was a human rights activist in Chechnya, who was sort of looking at what was happening with the investigation, with the rhetoric, and finding herself so conflicted that she was saying to me, well, if they, if they, if they kill Jahar, if they give him the death penalty, that terrorist attack will just be the beginning of this war of Chechens against America. And I felt like you know, she was – it was affect and part of the reason she was saying that was because she couldn't find the right thing to say sort of uh, because things weren't adding up. Uh, her expectations for for American society, which she had idealized, weren't adding up.
0: For you as a, as a journalist, as a writer, was the goal for you to kind of get to an understanding of how this happened? Was it to place it into a broader context? Did you have kind of an overriding goal that you wanted to accomplish
1: you know, I, as, as a writer and as a journalist, I think I always just try to tell a story. Uh, and, and I think if you tell a story well, then it gets you to an understanding and it places things in context and it makes for good reading. I'm not trying to be playful with this. I'm trying to say that, that actually storytelling is, is the greatest result of all. And when you get to the point where you feel like the story has, has gelled and it's coherent and I understand it and I can tell it, then that's that's when it begins to work.
0: Okay, well, um, there's an ending to the story in your book, obviously, and the the big story obviously still has not ended, um, but we'll leave it there. Masha, thank you so much. Thank you. The book, again, is called The Brothers, The Road to an American Tragedy by Masha Gessen, and it is reviewed on our cover this week by Janet Napolitano. Alexander
3: Alter is here with Notes from the Publishing World. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new this week? So you might have noticed um, on your young adult bestseller list this week, five of the top 10 books have something in common. They were all edited by Julie Strauss-Gable, who is John Green's editor. She also acquired books by Gail Foreman. So you'll see five of the top 10 titles are by her. It's not something that would be immediately apparent to readers because editors obviously don't have their names on the books. But uh, I became interested in the author she was acquiring and editing, and she's just become this force in the young adult world, which has become one of the sort of growth areas in publishing, one of the last bastions of growth, really, in publishing at this point. So I spent some time with her. I talked to a bunch of her authors and, and sort of looked at the Books that she's acquiring and publishing as a lens to look at this really booming spot in publishing. We're
0: talking about Paper Towns, Looking for Alaska, The Fault in Our Stars from John Green, exactly, and then
3: If I Stay and Where She Went from Carol Foreman. Okay, that's right. So she's the editor and publisher at Dutton, which is one of the oldest imprint, children's imprints in the country. And when she became the publisher in 2011, she completely changed it. At the time, they were publishing picture books, board books. They're the publisher of Winnie the Pooh. And she narrowed it down from you know 50 or 60 tales a year to 10 titles a year with a focus on young adult fiction, um, particularly contemporary realistic young adult fiction, which you know, after a wave of vampires, werewolves, and dystopia was sort of not the thing, but it has become sort of the hot trend now and at the time you know nobody had an imprint like that there weren't these young adult focused imprints before, you know there were you know historically there've just been sort of general children's books imprints and so i think this is really reflective of this shift that's happened in publishing where this category is no longer even really defined by age i mean we've seen so many adults buying and reading these books the covers have changed the placement in bookstores have changed it's you know, invaded all aspects of pop culture, from music to movies to, you know, what you see at the front of a bookstore and an airport. So it's really these these boundaries have completely eroded. I think I've seen a statistic that broke down the purchases
0: of y a books by age group. and eighteen to thirty four year olds are a big chunk of those readers. yes,
3: an enormous chunk of the of the book buyers. I think they make up, you know, way more than half, maybe 60%. And among those adults, they've narrowed it down in, in, in these surveys to say, are you buying these books for yourself or are you buying them for a child? And 60% of them say they're reading them themselves. Well, that's what they say. <laughs> um, I mean, I wonder even if it's
0: more than that, because I, obviously the usually you do have to distinguish between book buyers and book readers. But in the case of 18 to
3: 34-year-olds, I'm betting that not a lot of that age group has teenage children. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And moreover, we're seeing a really big spike in ebook sales uh, among young adult books. That's one part of publishing where ebooks are still growing by 30 percent, 20 percent, and that suggests a large adult readership as well. Moreover, um, there's just not, you know, the same stigma that used to be attached to reading young adult. It just that's where some of the most interesting writing is happening, some of the most compelling stories. And, you you know, you're seeing a growing number of adult authors moving in that direction from James Patterson and John Grisham to Meg Wolitzer and Carl Hiaasen and just tons of adults are, are just seeing this as not only a way to reach a younger audience, but just as a you know, a giant growth area in publishing that they want to be part of.
0: And the movies um, are giving these books to a push. There's kind of a, a reciprocal relationship between
3: both media. Isn't there a Paper Towns movie coming there out? There is, and this, that's an interesting point because obviously the Fault in Our Stars movie was what made the whole phenomenon explode. It was already a bestseller, but that at this point not has more than 18 million copies in print, which is just stunning for a book that came out just three years ago. And um, John Green's other book, Paper Towns, which Came out in two thousand eight is coming out in July as a movie by the same team that did *The Fault in Our Stars*. He's going to do a huge event at BookCon at Bea, and they're reprinting one point five million copies of the book, which is a massive number. You know, like the biggest adult title this year is Harper Lee's *Ghosts at a Watchman*, and they're printing two million copies of that. So you just see the the force of of you know young adult fiction, and and again the impact that movies can have in drawing in other demographics, adults, men you know, and and boosting book sales that way. I love way. the idea
0: of grown men weeping over these two teenage cancer patients falling in love. I know. The one thing I want to say, though, is that we can't credit the movies with all of the sales of these books because The Fault in Our Stars was a number one Amazon bestseller the day that the title was announced. Yes. Um, no, and that's
3: an excellent point. I think, you know, John Green is sort of exceptional because he has this YouTube fan base that he has – tapped into. And those readers really built him up. But I think what you saw with the movie was just this phenomenon exploding from sort of his core nerdfighter population, well, that's what they call themselves John Green fans, to sort of the, you know, the broader, it just really took over pop culture. And it seems like there's one of these movies every year. I mean, right now we had another Divergent movie came out. Last year it was another Hunger Games. And, you know, looking at the bestseller, the print bestsellers from 2014 last year and Publishers Weekly. Eight of the top 10 books were young adult or children's books. And the only two adult authors on the entire list were Gillian Flynn and Bill O'Reilly. We are all so mature. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me.
0: Gretchen Rubin joins us now. She is the author of Better Than Before, Mastering the Habits of Our Everyday Lives, reviewed this week in the book review. Hi, Gretchen. Hey, how are you? I'm good. So you are the author, obviously, of The Happiness Project and then Happiness at Home. How did you decide to write about habits, from happiness to habits?
2: Well, they're really, I found, very much related. And I had been thinking and writing and talking about happiness for years and, and talking to people about their what gave them a the happiness boost or even more frequently what was the happiness challenge for them. And what I noticed that it was that often this was something that at its core really had to do with a habit that they were having trouble mastering. Like someone would say to me, oh, I'm just exhausted all the time. But really, that's about the habit of getting enough sleep. And so I became increasingly drawn into this question of how and when are people able to change our, our habits?
0: I think for many people, the first thing they think about is bad habits, not necessarily good habits. But your book is, is really about both or about changing bad, either building new habits, good habits, or getting rid of bad ones.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right, because one of the things that, that has really become clear to me is that while I have a very positive association with habits, as you say, many people come to it not having a great idea about wanting to change their habits or even think about their habits. What I found is when it comes to making and breaking habit, I identified these 21 strategies, and that sounds like a lot, but it's great, because it means there's a lot to choose from. There's 21 strategies that people use, and they use the same whether they're making a habit or breaking a habit. They apply the same strategies. Um, and I think a lot of people, when they realize how much work habits can do for them, how, what a, how energizing and freeing they can be, um, hopefully I can persuade them to have a, a better view of habits.
0: Um, you know, when in kids' homework, they, they learn new vocabulary words and they say, okay, now create a sentence with these you know three words. Yes. If you had to make a sentence out of with happiness and habits, how would you describe the relationship between the two?
2: Habits allow us to make our lives, happier, healthier, and more productive. And so using habits, we're more able to achieve happiness. We can make our life reflect the way we want it to be.
0: That was a very good spontaneous answer to a very hard homework question. Um, One of the key um, components to your book is that essential ideas that Not everyone can create or break a habit in the same way because we're not all alike. What are the four tendencies that you describe in the book?
2: In a nutshell, that's my argument, which is that a lot of times people look for a one-size-fits-all solution. They want a magic answer or they want to copy the habits of Benjamin Franklin, and they think that's going to work for them. And, you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. You really have to start by thinking about yourself, what's true about you. Um, and there's many things that influence what kind of habits will work for you. Um, but one of the things that I developed is this, what you refer to, the four tendencies framework. The four tendencies looks at how people respond to the idea of forming a habit and under what conditions they'll be able to do it successfully. Because it turns out, you know, as you know just from looking around you and the people in your own life, um, people are very different when it comes to their aptitude for habits and their attitude towards habits.
0: So you have, you have four types. You have the upholder on one end and maybe uh, the, the rebel on the other end. Yeah. And then in the middle you have?
2: Questioner and obliger.
0: And can you be a combination of two? Can you be a questioner slash upholder? Or do you think that people really do fall into one major category and it's better to think of yourself that way?
2: Well, you know, it seems like it would be sensible to think that people would be a mix or like I'm one at work and one at home. But what I found is that really... It's a pretty pervasive way of looking at the world and relating to expectations because this all has to do with how you respond to an expectation, whether an outer outer expectation like a work deadline or an inner expectation like your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. And the four types respond differently. Um, And really people are very consistent. You know, um, when people tell me they're a mix, usually when I, I, I girl them for a few minutes, I feel like they vary. They're very consistently with one within one category. So I do feel like people really do. They say that people fall into two categories: the kind of people who like to break people into categories, and the kind of people who don't. And I'm definitely the former kind. So I feel like people do fit into these four these four tendencies.
0: Well, at some other point, you'll have to explain to me how I'm not an upholder slash questioner. But I like in the book. This is not just this is not the one distinction you make, but you have a number of ways in which you show how people's personalities or temperaments um, or ideals, make them respond differently to habits. And I think of those, my favorite was the distinction between being a finisher and being uh, a starter, or an opener, Opener. an opener, and that your husband, Jamie, is an opener and you're a finisher. Explain to listeners what what you meant by that.
2: So in the strategy of distinctions, I point out a bunch of ways that people can be different from each other, because a lot of times we just assume that other people are like us And we don't realize, well, maybe people have a different way of doing it. Some people, and that's, as you said, me, um, I'm very focused on finishing. I like crossing things off the list. I like squeezing out the last little drop of toothpaste from the toothpaste tube Sometimes I may be overly concerned about starting a project because I'm very concerned whether I can finish it. So I'm very focused on finishing it. But then some people are openers. And my husband's an opener, which is why I found that we had four bags of granola open in our kitchen cabinet, which drove me crazy. They have, you know, they love starting a new tube of toothpaste. Um, And then often they love starting new projects, like a friend of mine who was a law professor who said he had multiple half-written law review articles because he loves starting them but he didn't enjoy the process of finishing them. Um, And so knowing whether you're an opener or a finisher helps you know, like, what kind of some of the pitfalls when you're trying to form a habit. So a finisher might want to go – like, I go to a gym where all you do is strength training, and once you do that, you're done, and that's very satisfying for me. But an opener might like to go to a gym that has many, many possibilities, and they can start – you know, start and stop different things um, over time, because for them, starting something new is very exciting. They want to open that possibility.
0: So it's people who maybe thrive on on novelty as opposed to people who thrive on kind of limitations. Yes. And, Many of the um, applications that you describe in the book, the examples, relate to things that so many people struggle with, Um, food and health, weight, um, exercise, sleep, yes. Many of those um, activities, while largely normal for most people, can cross over into addictive behavior um, or um, compulsive behavior. I mean, where do you draw the line between a habit and an addiction? And to what extent, sort of, is there a limitation to where your strategies kind of cease to apply?
2: When I was working on habits, I decided I wasn't going to cover addiction, compulsions, disorders, or nervous habits, something like nail-biting, because mm-hmm. those to me seem different than just the ordinary everyday habits of, as you say, like trying to stop procrastinating about whatever it is that you're trying to get done. And, of course, it's very controversial. Even the idea of addiction is very, is very controversial. I think one of the key things to look at when you're trying to decide if it's if it's crossing over that invisible border is, is this... Is this something that's enriching your life, or is it something that's making your life very negative, if it's something that you're doing too much of? So if someone says you're addicted to exercise, you're exercising too much, well, is is exercise actually for you something that's enriching your life, and you think, well, this is great, and I'm pushing myself, and I'm meeting new people? and I'm meeting my goals, and I'm traveling around the country doing this, and I love it? Or do you feel like, man, it's interfering with my life. I'm breaking my promises to everybody around me because I have to exercise. Like, is it making your life bigger or smaller? That's one thing that's very helpful. But you're right. Sometimes these things, uh, they sort of imperceptibly grade into each other at at a certain point.
0: One of the things um, that I loved about your book is that you are very astute, in pointing out common human foibles. Um, so, to give an example, talk about uh, your chapter, Nothing Stays in Vegas.
2: Well, I have to say, of all the st- strategies, all 21 strategies, the, the strat- that strategy, the strategy of loophole spotting, was the most fun to write about because strat- these loopholes are so hilarious. We are so good at coming up with loopholes for ourselves. And a loophole is when you're not mindfully making an exception, but you're deciding like in the heat of the moment, hey, I just realized there's this justification out there that lets me off the hook. And there's 10 categories of loopholes. We're just so expert at figuring out ones to invoke. So, and, and, and everybody has their favorites. Um, one of the favorites um, that I often hear is uh, the fake self-actualization loophole which is when you sort of say, oh, well, I have to let myself off the hook for this habit because you only live once, or I have to take advantage of this opportunity or miss out forever, or life's too short not to eat a cupcake, or the nothing stays in Vegas is the, um, you know, the uh, like maybe the tomorrow loophole, which is, well, it doesn't matter what I do today because starting tomorrow I'm going to be so good, or moral licensing, I've been so good already, I deserve to give myself this thing, and sometimes, you know, you'll hear someone cycle through five or six categories in a single breath because we're such good advocates for ourselves when it comes to figuring out why just this one time turns out we're off the hook.
0: So you describe yourself in the, in the book as an upholder, which um, struck me as being kind of the easiest one in a way to, uh, to build habits with because upholders like rules and habits are about following rules. Yes, And the other category, the sort of the, the opposite pole category, is uh, the rebel. Can you talk a little bit about the rebel and uh, and then for those rebel listeners sort of what they can do
2: to build good habits? You're exactly right. Rebels, they want to do what they want to do. They want to act from choice and freedom. They resist outer expectations and inner expectations alike. So they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. So often they can form habit-like behaviors but often not really buying into it in the same way as making it a habit, because they really want to choose every time. So for a rebel, one of the best ways to do something is just to remember, this is what you want. You want to go running. You like to go running. This is what you choose to do. And you like being outside. You like listening to music. You like feeling young and energetic and tying it to that. Also, sometimes rebels can um, stick to habit-like behaviors, um, even when they wouldn't otherwise do so if it's tied to their identity. So maybe you want to be seen as a strong leader. And you're a rebel, so you wouldn't ordinarily want to go to a staff meeting every week on time because you would resent the fact that you're supposed to go. But because you want to be a strong leader, you're able to do that because you see that as allowing you to express uh, your identity. It's tied to your sense of authentic self. And then a funny thing that I've noticed with a lot of rebels is that they like to do things in their own way. And so often they'll choose to do a habit in a way that's very idiosyncratic. So, for instance, a rebel friend of mine was ran regularly, and I said, hey, as a rebel, how are you able to get yourself to run so 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 often? And, and one of the ways was he runs barefoot. And he clearly got a huge kick out of this because people would point to him, you know, as he was going through the park and say, like, hey, man, you forgot your shoes. So rebels can find ways to do it, but they just have a very different approach to it. Like you say, I'm an upholder, and, and one of the things that I learned in writing the book was that habits come pretty easily to me, which is probably one of the reasons that I decided to write a book about it. <laughs> I like habits. I see the benefit. And, uh, and so for me, it's a very attractive subject.
0: Um, before we go, are you working on a new habit right now, or have you come up uh, – is there something that's come out of having written the book and now being on tour for it?
2: So I have a brand-new habit that I'm really excited about, which is that I started a podcast. Called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Um, It's a weekly podcast. I do it with my brilliant, hilarious sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's also a TV writer. She lives in LA. And every week, for about 25 minutes, we talk about happiness and good habits and just practical ideas um, for how to live a happier, healthier, more productive life. And we talk a lot about our own experiences. And since we're sisters, we don't let each other get away with much. So it has been really fun um, to form the habit of having a weekly podcast.
0: I know nothing about that. All right. I know. Thank you, Gretchen. Thank you. It's so, so great to talk to you. Uh, the book, again, is Better Than Before, Mastering the Habits of Our Everyday Lives by Gretchen Rubin. Greg Coles is here with bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. What's new?
4: Well, on the fiction side of things, starting down at number 14, there's a new book by Peter V. Brett. It's book four of his Demon Cycle, and it's called The Skull Throne, new at number 14.
0: Have all the Demon Cycle books made the bestseller (laughs) list?
4: Oh, I knew you would ask me that question, and I'm not prepared to answer it. I I don't know, but I can tell you, uh, new at number 13, T. Corragason Boyle or TC Boyle has his fourth bestseller. So I don't know if all four of the Demon Cycles have made the list, but I know that TC Boyle has had four bestsellers of uh, his
0: fifteen novels.
4: <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he's written quite a lot of novels. He uh, has a solid and well-deserved critical reputation. So it is a little bit heartening, if not surprising, uh, to realize that um, four of those books have made the list, going all the way back to 1981 when uh, Water Music. Made made the list. The others are his novel Drop City from 2004 and The Women from 2009. Uh, This year, it's The Harder They Come, his new novel about kind of a right-wing militia group and how it um, affects one particular family. That's new at number 13. Even Boyle's books that don't make the list do often hang out on the extended list. Um, I've found a number of them there. So far, it's been four to hit the actual print list.
0: But not The Road to Wellville, which was made into a famous flop of a movie.
4: Oh, that's the one about uh, Kellogg, who yes. invented Kellogg's cereals. Right. <laughs> uh, famous flop of a movie and not a best selling novel either, alas.
0: All right. Our next bestseller?
4: Uh, At the Water's Edge by Sarah Gruen, who, of course, is famous for Water for Elephants, which spent three years on the trade paperback list Um, at the water's edge is another historical novel as water for elephants was this is uh, set during world war ii it is about a search for the loch ness monster and it's new on the hardcover list at number six Uh, Then new at number five, Steve Barry continues his Cotton Malone um, thriller series uh, with a book called The Patriot Threat, new at number five. The last new entry on the hardcover fiction list is a book called The Shadows by J.R. Ward, who is also known as the romance writer Jessica Bird, not to be confused with J.D. Robb, who is also known as romance writer Nora Roberts. If you've been paying attention these last few years, you'll uh, rattle those names off as easily as I do.
0: All right. Nonfiction. <laughs>
4: <laughs> On the nonfiction um, side of things, there are four new titles. Starting down at number 14, the NPR host, Scott Simon, uh, who's had best-selling books before, has a memoir of his mother called Unforgettable uh, that is new at number 14. That book actually started with a series of tweets that he put out about his mother after her death. And uh, this is a reminiscence of his mother.
0: There's a book that's coming out, I think, this month as well. It's um, based on Facebook updates. Is that right? Notebook, yes, well, published by Princeton University Press.
4: Interestingly, that is interesting. New at number thirteen, a book called "Between You and Me" by Mary Norris, who has spent decades as a copy editor at The New Yorker. "Between You and Me" is part grammar manual and part memoir of her time there. It's a really charming book. Um, I, I was flipping through it this morning, and a section caught my eye about the uses and misuses of apostrophes in business names, and she gives a specific example. Um, the use of the apostrophe in McDonald's and the trouble that it caused at one point in The New Yorker to figure out what the plural possessive of McDonald's would be. If you were talking about McDonald'ss uh, you know, bulk sales or something, uh, they came up with McDonald' apostrophe S E S apostrophe. Of course.
0: <laughs> Is this the first grammar bestseller since Eat Shoots and
4: Leaves? I don't know the answer to that question, but it is a book that is very much in the vein of Eats, Shoots, and Leaves and uh, sure to find the same audience. Then new at number 12, John Ronson, the Welsh uh, journalist who's got a radio presence. um, He's been a regular on This American Life, but uh, who has also written previous books, has a new book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, in which he looks at Twitter, Facebook, really especially Twitter. Um, The rise of denunciation on social media and how um, it's really ruined some people's lives. Um, they've been fired from their jobs. Their marriages have broken up. He, he looks at how horrible this um, phenomenon of public shaming is.
0: It's the return of shame.
4: Yeah. He really links it back to the stockades, basically. Then finally, uh, new at number six, Fareed Zakaria has a book called In Defense of a Liberal Education. It is basically a defense of the traditional curriculum in the arts and sciences. Uh, He does allow for a role for the sciences, but it's also a book kind of arguing against the recent emphasis on STEM education, STEM training, meaning sciences, technology, uh, engineering, and math. He says that that whole thing just puts too much emphasis on careers and on um, kind of utilitarian training, and we've lost the ability to think for ourselves, to uh, to question things, um, to write creatively, um, or even to communicate well, it is not surprisingly an argument that has received some challenges from actual scientists.
0: On that cheery note, I'm just going to do a quick rundown of all of the books on the nonfiction side that have to do with death. Uh, Number one, Dead Wake by Eric Larson. Number two, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. At number five, Killing Patton by Bill O'Reilly. At number... Fifteen, Killing Jesus by (laughs) Bill O'Reilly. So death is going strong. I'm
4: going to throw a couple more in there. Um, At number four, H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald is a memoir of her father's death and how she kind of coped with her grief uh, through learning falconry. And at number 16, Every Day I Fight by the ESPN uh, anchor Stuart Scott is about his battle against cancer, which he lost in January of this year, and the, the book is being published posthumously.
0: All right. Never underestimate or undercount death. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.